Well, we've been walking through the pastoral epistles, walking through 1 Timothy, and we've seen a couple things over and over again. Um, David mentioned them again last week, and they're really kind of two sides of the same coin. Paul is telling Timothy, look, you need to stay in Ephesus, lead this church that we planted. I've got to go, but you stay here and you do the work of the ministry here. And Paul summarizes that in two ways. First, Paul tells Timothy, you've got to remember the doctrine that I handed down to you. The things that the scriptures teach, you need to uphold those things in Ephesus. Teach them to the people, remind them of them. You yourself keep watch on it, make sure that all these things that I've taught you are kept pure. Now, uh, that gets fouled up in a couple of different ways in the pastoral epistles because you have these rogue uh, adversaries that Paul um, warns Timothy about. So there's people that are actually not believing sound doctrine there. And Paul says, you see the way that this causes strife and division. You see the way that it's difficult for people to believe the gospel if things aren't clear about what the gospel is. So keep Sound doctrine. Keep watch over your doctrine. Now David, last week, uh, I think compellingly illustrated that there's two ways for us to get confused doctrinally. There's one, and it's the obvious one, it's like if we took pieces of the Nicene Creed and just denied them, right? It's like if you say, I don't believe that Jesus is God. That would be unsound doctrine. I don't believe the Bible is reliable. That would be unsound doctrine. I believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a being, not the third person of the Trinity. That would be unsound doctrine. But chances are, I think that all of us know that that's not primarily the way that we struggle the most often with unsound doctrine. The way that we struggle is the data. If that's kind of the cognitive way that I just mentioned, there's also this sort of experiential thing that all of us know, right? It's, I don't really know if I believe that God loves me. I don't know if I can believe that Jesus is united to me. I don't really feel like the Holy Spirit indwells me. Those things, believing that stuff, that's believing unsound doctrine too, and that's really the more common way that we struggle with it. I know that maybe you would say, I believe that God loves me, but I don't believe He has a specific way that He's laid out in His Word that He wants me to live. That would be believing unsound doctrine. So that Paul says to Timothy readily, right? He says it chapter after chapter after chapter. And the second thing Paul says is Paul exhorts Timothy towards is godliness. He wants Timothy to believe certain things about God. He wants him to keep watch on his doctrine, but he also wants him to keep watch on his life. There's a certain way that you're going to be in this world that relates to the gospel, and I want you to enact that and embody it. Live in a certain way, because it's important. Last week we read where Paul says to Timothy, Keep watch on your life. Do act a certain way so that all may see your progress. It's important that Paul walks in a way before the Ephesians that's worthy of the gospel. When they see Timothy's life, they say, wow, I see the gospel in Timothy's life. So that's, that's uh, two different, those, those two different things you see over and over again. Now, we're in 1 Timothy 5. And this is going to seem like a major league transition. When you hear what I read, you're going to say, this sounds much, much different than what you talked about. What I hope we can understand today is that even though 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16 is so specific and sort of dense, it's still saying the exact same thing. So let me read 
First uh, Timothy five verses one through sixteen for us. This is the word of the Lord. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled. If she is not less than 60 years of age, having the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear, ch- bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed from Satan, straight after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray together. Father, this is a dense passage, and it's dense not only because of how specific it is, but it's a huge weight on us to realize the obligation that we have to care for another care for one another. Will you give us grace this morning? Send your spirit, open all of our hearts, guard me from saying anything erroneous or unhelpful, and let this word land on us with a weight that gives us a zeal to go out and be merciful to one another. In your name we pray. Amen. In seminary, they teach you to love and do expository preaching. They teach you to take the Bible Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, don't skip anything. Preach the whole counsel of God when you become a minister. And that's awesome in seminary. It sounds great. It's an awesome ideal. And then you come to passages like this when you're a real pastor and you say, what on earth are we doing? Your zeal wanes a little bit. But it's important. This stuff is important. And I think we're going to try to do something this morning with this passage that allows the Word, God's Word in the Scripture, to leap the gap from a very specific first century situation and land in the Taps building in the 21st century, calling us, I think, to a very real kind of service to one another. Now, it's dense though, isn't it? I mean, you heard it, it's dense, but it's not dense in like a philosophical way, right? It's not dense like in the way that like a big, fat theology textbook would be dense. This is dense like a mortgage contract is dense. It's like procedurally dense. And so to, to walk away from when we walk away from it, it would be easy to get bogged down in the details and in the hairs of the whole thing and get kind of confused. But I want just the fact that this text exists to really land on us. And what I mean is this, I want us this morning to see the great 
pains that the scriptures take to articulate a very specific way of us learning to be merciful with each other. This is deliberate and merciful. Deliberate. It's not blandly generous. It's not haphazard in its generosity at all. There's something extremely deliberate about this. And we're going to see the kind of generosity this morning from the scriptures that I think forces the human mind to engage. This is generosity that forces a Christian to be creative. It's not the kind of generosity that's off the cuff. This is deliberate and premeditated. For somebody to think about something this dense, they would have had to have thought about it a lot. I don't know if you guys ever think about um, the Apostle Paul like as a human being, but I do occasionally. And it's easy to get the impression from Paul that he was sort of this rogue, roving philosopher, theologian just really concerned only with the intricacies of how people get saved, a super deep thinker that just kind of dropped in on different church congregations throughout Asia Minor and just injuncted them with doctrines of salvation. But here you've got something vastly different, right? You've got a brilliant mind that says, what does it look like as a church to do something highly practical, like take care of widows? What does that look like? That's an amazing thing for a man like this to sit down, dig in, put his heels in the ground and say, we're going to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, you're going to learn to be generous to each other, but you're going to do it in a really certain kind of way. You're going to do it in the kind of way that says eternity hangs in the balance, not just tomorrow, not just the next meal. All of eternity hangs in the balance in the way that you treat one another and are generous to another, one another. So, like I said, what we want to do here is just say, how do we leap the gap? How does the word leap 2,000 years? And a specific thing in Ephesus about widows, how does it come here? Especially on the heels of having a vote this morning where we elected elders and deacons, where we elected our pastors, what kind of thing does this procedural density say to our church? And so, I just have two points this morning. They're simple. I think, um, one, the church has an obligation to treat each other with familial affection. That's a mouthful, but it's all I mean by that is the church has an obligation to treat each other like family and to honor the poor. That's point one. And then secondly, the church in its generosity has more in mind, it has this in mind, but it has more in mind than bare physical needs. So that's all we're going to do this morning. That's where we're going. Look at verses 1 through 3 to start with. What's Paul say here? Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity, and then honor widows. So in verses 1 through 3, Paul is showing Timothy the basic way that the church ought to be relating to each other. When you think about the life of Jesus, like if you, can, if you can hold these verses in your mind and then let your mind travel back to what you know about the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, you'll remember that one of the things that you're struck by as you read them is that Jesus is always trying to turn people's imaginations upside down. And you guys understand what I mean by imagination. I don't mean like you know, my son Sully has a wild imaginations about monsters under his bed. I just mean 
the way that Jesus interacted with the world. He wanted people to look out at the world and change the way their minds interacted with the world. That happens over and over and over again. You remember the story of the woman at the well. You know, She says, hey, I'm wondering about where we're going to worship. Gerizim down here, up there, down here, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, that's not, you got it all wrong. I'm talking to you about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. He says, can I have a drink of water? And she says, you don't have a bucket. And he says, no, 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 no. I've got water that I want to give you that will quench your thirst for eternity. He's taking her imagination and he's saying, you've thought about something this way, but I want to I twist it and turn it and turn it upside down. We're, um, as David described so eloquently this morning, we're entering the season of Advent. In two weeks, we're going to be in Advent. And in that season, we focus on the fact that God became man. John says he put on flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood. What that means is, when we look at the life of Jesus, we're witnessing what God would do if he took on flesh and blood. What would God do in a specific circumstance? What would he do if he took on flesh and blood? Because that's exactly what he did. And too often... I think when we think about that, we make God, when we think about God, we tend to make Him in our image rather than us in His. We expect God to love the people that we love. We expect God to prefer the people that we prefer. We expect God to honor who we honor. But we find the opposite to be true over and over again in the life of Jesus. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he falls among thieves. A priest walks by him. A Jewish priest walks by him down the road, sees him badly beaten, left for dead on the side of the road, and he just walks on. He doesn't, he doesn't stop at all. Then a Levite comes by, right? He's walking along, sees the man badly beaten, wounded, left for dead on the road to Jericho, and he does nothing. Then, of course, the Samaritan man, a man who out of the three is certainly not directly connected to the injured and robbed man on the Jericho Road. And it's that man whose heart is moved in mercy towards this Jewish man. And you remember how this thing came up. It came up when a man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, let me tell you the story about the Good Samaritan. And then after the story, Jesus put the question back on him. Who would you say was the neighbor? And the man said, the man who showed him mercy. The story of the Good Samaritan is like the kissing cousin of verses 1 through 3 of 1 Timothy 5. Paul wants Timothy to reorient himself to the Christians in Ephesus to the degree that they treat each other as kin. That takes a conversion of our imaginations. We're not going to naturally do that. This is a room full of vastly different kinds of people. And to treat each other as family takes great difficulty. It takes the gospel, of course. We are, not, we are built to, but sin has corrupted us in such a way that we, our hearts rarely turn from ourselves and towards other people. If they do, it's only momentary. And then maybe just to the people that we would naturally do that to. But Paul is articulating a vision where the whole of a local church is to be treated with that kind of family responsibility. This, 1 Timothy 5, 1-3, condemns the Levite and it condemns the priest on the road to Jericho. Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, charity doesn't necessarily begin at home. 
The church at Ephesus Charity has to move way out. It has to start somewhere, but it ends up everywhere in the church. Now, all that said, I I think verses 1 through 3 and everything that we just said, Paul's thinking about these things, and then his mind just like immediately goes to this issue of widows. We know that the presence of widows in the early church was a super big deal. If you remember Acts chapter 6 and 7, the place where deacons are originally elected like we did this morning, that happened because a dispute arose in the early church about how the church was going to treat and act towards widows. And so this was a huge, a very real and present subject for the early church. And I want to take a moment. We're not going to hit every detail, but I do want to take a moment and just take a stab at summarizing for you what I think is going on here with this entire passage and with the widows in this church. Here it is. Caring for the financial needs of these women was a serious obligation. Paul took that deeply serious, and it's clear, I think, that other elders did as well. They took their needs extremely seriously, and they built programs that supported these women financially. Look at, look at verse 9. You see the word enrolled there? That's what my Bible says. This was, they're, they're enrolling women. It's like a church-based welfare program that supported widows. Now, that's obvious enough. You get that from the passage. You notice that when I read it. The church has an obligation to support widows. What gets complicated about this passage is when you realize that there were certain stipulations that prohibited all of the widows from being served by the diaconate. So what's Paul doing here? He's structuring this program in such a way that it's sustainable for the church for the long term. And if a woman if if the church if the there are women there that the church can't feasibly support financially, Paul incites the role of the actual family. They've got to participate. If a family has able-bodied people, they need to work and take care of those in their family if they're, for whatever reason, destitute. Now, of course, we all know that there's reasons for financial impoverishment in our world today that don't necessarily have anything to do. People are going to experience financial hardship even when they're able-bodied. And this does not prohibit that kind of generosity. Of course, you see that, you see that, kind of, you see that in the New Testament all the time. But Paul knew that the Ephesian church needed more than financial security. And this is what I want to land on us this morning. This actually is a total continuation of everything that we've said up until now. Paul wants for widows the very same thing that he wants for Timothy. He wants widows to keep their doctrine pure. Look at verse 5. They have to set their hope on God. There's a certain way that he's got more in mind for them than just supporting their bare needs. You've got to keep your doctrine pure. The, uh, you're going to, as a widow, because of your poverty, you're going to feel like you need to do other things to make money that would not be appropriate. That was a huge problem in the first century. But Paul says, keep your doctrine pure. Trust the Lord. Trust the local church to provide for you. Do not stray into all sorts of other things. Paul also wants them to live lives that were honorable, lives worthy of the gospel, which is what you see in verses 6, 7, 10, 11, 12, and 13. The Ephesian church isn't wealthy. It's not, it doesn't, 
you know, it doesn't have an endless stream of wealth. And so Paul had to make decisions for what they were going to do when they supported these women. Of course they were going to give according to their means. And of course they were going to give way beyond their means. But they wanted those gifts to be in the most needed place. So this is what I think we can take away. This is where I think we come in. And this is something that I want us to take really, really, really seriously. The church has more in mind in its generosity than simple financial and physical needs. We're always going to have a greater agenda than meeting some bare physical need. We will do that, but we aren't ever going to only do that. One of the hallmarks of maturity is for us to be able to look beyond immediate needs. This is like what your parents teach you, right, when you're in adolescence. Think about the long term. Don't make your your God, your belly. Don't spend all your money on Nintendo games. You need to save money. You're going to need it down the road. Don't let the thing that's right in front of your face be the only thing that you think about and worry about. Think about the long term. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to realize that that's maturity, right? That's what that's most people in wisdom just say that kind of thing. Think about what you're going to need down the road. But for a Christian, it's doubly important because eternity hangs in the balance. There's no gift that's right in front of our face that we don't say, let's think about something way beyond that. We want to look through the bare financial need and look way into the future. We know that there's going to be situations, and they've already happened in this church, where somebody comes up and they've got what they're thinking about is the thing that's right in front of their face. I don't have money for another meal. I don't have money to pay rent. I don't have money to pay my electric bill. And this church desperately wants to know those needs and we want to provide, we want to help with them. We want to provide for them. But we also want to look way beyond that need and into the future. Knowing that this issue could come up next month and then the next month and knowing that eternity is really out there. And so there's no bare physical need that doesn't also need the gospel and doesn't need something spiritual put in it. When Anna, my, our son Sully was born in September of 2009. And at that time, I was working as a carpenter full time and I was in seminary. And Anna at the time was working as a social worker. But, of course, when we had our first baby, Anna had to quit work. And we weren't prepared for that major financial change, really. And so by November, we were broke. We didn't have anything at all, and I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew to do was to call the the chairman of the deacons at the church that we were members of at that time and say, I need help. We need help. And something happened on that phone call that I will never forget. It changed my life. I mean, I I really believe it changed the way that I think about the way the church works forever. And that is, this person said, John, we'd be glad to pay your rent and your electrical bill. We'll send a check tomorrow. We're glad to do that. But what are you going to do about December? And what are you going to do about January? And how's it going, loving Anna with a new child? What does it mean for you, John, to father that child? Are you thinking about that? Are you praying with your family? You see what that person was doing? He saw the immediate physical need and he met it. And he went above what I even asked. But he said, let's look beyond that. Because this isn't the end. All you're thinking about right now is this. But I've got the foresight and the wisdom to look beyond it. This is what it means 
to present somebody mature in Christ. Presenting somebody mature in Christ is to look at human beings as a whole. Remember David said that to me two weeks ago, that my role when I was ordained was to present people mature in Christ. But of course he said, that's everybody's role in here. And that's what it looks like. It's taking these two things side by side and saying, we want to minister to whole people, physical and spiritual people. So in conclusion, 1 Timothy 5 is like an inside look at the deep procedural efforts of a church dead set on real mercy to its members. Paul knew that a non-deliberate dollar was a cheap and meager response to a king who sends his son into a broken world. A world under the dominion of sin needed a magic deep. One that was conjured up before the beginning of time. It needed to come through a long and complex story beginning with Abraham. And it needed to climax in God's own life erupting into the world in the humble nativity of the virgin born. And in the horrors of Golgotha. And the story of Ephesus's ministry to widows would have to be just as dense. It would have to be just as whole. And all of its, hist- all of its intricacies will bang through history. In Paul's letter to Timothy, everybody's going to remember the moment that they had to decide what they were going to do with the poor amongst them. And it banged all the way through history and manifested itself in the church's revolutionary and profound discipline of hospitality. And now it's dropped off on the corner of Main and Blanding on the steps of the Taps building. And the question for us this morning, is that the kind of mercy that we want to pick up? Is this the tradition on the morning when you elected elders and deacons? Will this church pick that up and take it? Will we shake the dust of worldly status off of our boots As we walk in here, and can we present each other mature in Christ by attending to each other's physical needs, all the while remembering that eternity hangs in the balance? The answer to that is yes. You can do this. By God's Spirit, we can do this together. We can call each other to lives of familial affection, and we can spread mercy in our midst and out those doors by God's help. Let's pray for that now. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your love towards us and your Son. And we would ask that you would continue to just open our hearts to your gospel, that we would love you more, that we would treasure you more, that we would not store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but we would think about treasures in heaven. And that would include letting the things that you give us here be shared in our midst. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.